Then Bildad the Shuite replied, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must the rocks be moved from their place? The lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him goes out. The vigour of his step is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. His feet thrust him into a net. He wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden for him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. Terrors startle him on every side and dog his every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. It eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent. Burning sulphur is scattered over his dwelling. His roots dry up below and his branches wither above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. He is driven from light into the realm of darkness and is banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where once he lived. People of the West are appalled at his fate. Those of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who does not know God. Well, the title of today is Miserable Comforters, and that might uh, give you some scope into... Uh, hearing that passage and the message in which Job's friends uh, speak with him. But we're going to use that and other passages from Job to explore uh, particularly how his friends seek to console Job but actually make life more miserable and hard for him. So keep that open. But I do encourage you, there is printed throughout a series of readings from Job that you could take home this week and read through some more. But tonight, uh, let me just extend my welcome to Dylan's. My name's Rowan. I'm the assistant minister here. Um, It's great to be with you. We've been in the book of Job the last few weeks. And last week we left Job in uh, a place of horror and misery. And he voiced that in real raw words of lament. And then tonight we see his friends, three friends, respond to him uh, for the first time and through a series of uh, long speeches where he replies and then they respond. And so we're going to tap into that. But we're covering chapters 4 to 27, so there's a lot of material to cover, so it won't so much be a unpacking a passage like we usually would, but rather giving us some ways to think about this broader section. So I hope that it's an encouragement to you. Uh, But the theme of friendship emerges for us tonight as we look at this passage. And some of us this week watched a seminar on friendship, uh, which was very helpful. 
And friendship is, I think, for us, um, and particularly people of a younger generation, it, much emphasis is placed on, on friendship. It's uh, the relationship, in some senses, of, of choice for people because often we, we turn to friendships for our happiness and friendship offers us much. But often we don't consider as much. Alongside its benefits, friendship also has its perils and, and limitations. We may have experienced them. See, being a good friend can be hard, and a few of us may have both uh, received the sting of being hurt by a friend or perhaps been, that, been those that have administered that um, and it can be a hard thing to think through. And so today we, we consider friendship, and particularly friendship in the midst of suffering. So when a friend is suffering, what do we do? Or as the case may be, as we read this, what we don't do. But a moment where friendship can be stretched is in, in suffering, because that becomes a moment where we, we want to care, but caring sometimes is a scary exercise I can remember uh, at a church that I worked with in Sheffield, there was a family with a daughter who was the same age as my eldest, and she um, had a diagnosis of of cancer, and that was a a big shock to the congregation. And I can remember I was on leading the service the day that that was to be announced to the congregation. Um, And as I was sitting down at the front, Next to me was sat her grandmother. And so very nervously, I asked her how she was doing. And as you can imagine, she replied with a a very raw, emotional response, which was real and heartfelt. And I can remember replying, I can only imagine. And she just looked at me in the eyes, and she went, no, you can't. I'm sorry, no, you can't. And, And it was that moment where I'm like, okay, ground, open up and take me swallow me. Uh, And she was right. I couldn't. Now, afterwards, uh, you know, it's not the greatest vote of confidence to then go up and leave the service uh, after having such a conversation, but um, she very graciously afterwards, you know, we we talked through it and she'd apologised that she um, might have spoken forthrightly, but that was a real emotion and she was was right. But it, it highlights something, isn't it, that our disposition sometimes when people are facing suffering is to feel a little paralysed because we don't want to screw it up. We want to be helpful in that situation and not unhelpful. Um, so friendship can be a fraught task. How do we be good friends? Well, I think we get insight today from this passage. But as I hinted at before, we get insight from what not to do with these three friends. But that allows us to reflect also on what we can maybe say or do and be a good friend. So I think there's things for us to uh, see here and be encouraged by as we look at it. But as we begin, just to set a bit of context for where we are in the book of Job, last week in chapter 3, we were left with Job's really dark words. He finished his lament saying, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. If you remember what led to these words was that in chapters 1 and 2, which we saw the week earlier, we watched Job, who was a blameless and upright man, 
suffer unbelievable, heart-rending loss. He lost his possessions, his children were killed, his health was destroyed. It was layers upon layers of grief. Now, we got insight into, we could hear the conversation that took place in the heavenly courts between God and the Satan, the enemy, and how the Lord had given him permissions to do such things to Job, but not to take his life. But Job doesn't have that insight, and nor do the friends who we will encounter today. Throughout the book, Job is adamant that he's innocent, he hasn't sinned, and so he's not being punished for his sin. In fact, it's actually the reverse. Job suffers because he is upright, but he wrestles with this. We saw that last week. He wrestles with why this is the case. Why is he experiencing such horrors? For there seems to be no explanation, only suffering without purpose. And so while Job struggles alone with these personally, we see that he does in time get company. Uh, Three key characters in the book come to him today. We see that scene, and it's a touching scene in verse 12 of chapter 2. It says, When they saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him, but they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw how great his suffering was. They seem to be like good friends, wonderful counsellors, don't they? They sit, but their silence is short-lived. And it seems so is their comfort. Because for the next nine or so chapters, in three rounds, uh, we see these friends speak to Job and seek to explain what the problems are, why he's suffering. And each time Job responds. And although... Job's appearance made his friends sad. What we will see is that his words in response to them makes them very angry. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at um, the common themes of the friends' speeches. Because although they're not clones in what they say, they do sing from the same song sheet. And we'll dip into Bildad's second speech as a window into the others. So why were they miserable companions? Well, principally we see they were miserable companions because of how they understood what was happening to Job. Job's comforters are not impressed with Job. As we, if you read through some of these speeches, you'll see that Job's responses and his insistence that he hasn't done anything wrong makes them angry. In chapter 4, some of the first words of Eliphaz, he says, "'Consider now who, being innocent,' has ever perished. Who being innocent has ever perished? These are some of his first words of of comfort for his friend. He's basically saying, you must have done something wrong for this to have happened. And that's the same theme that emerges over and over in these rounds of argument. Job says that he hasn't been punished for a particular sin, for he hasn't committed one. He's blameless. He has nothing on his conscience that could justify this treatment from God, it seems to be unfair, but this makes his friends livid. But what we see as well is that Job's not very impressed with his friends either. The feeling is is mutual. He calls them miserable comforters. He'll go on to respond with biting sarcasm to them. 
And this is prompted by the error and cruelty that he sees in his friends. In chapter 19, verse 2, he says, How long will you torment me? How long will you crush me with your words? Job is not impressed with the comforters. So who was right? Well, ultimately, if we were to stand back and look at the book as a whole, and particularly the last chapter of the book where God speaks into this situation, we see that God vindicates Job. In fact, to his friends, he says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. So ultimately, Job is vindicated. But the question is then, well, if they haven't spoken truth about God, where did they go wrong? And that's what we're going to quickly look at now. Uh, And you'll see in your outline that their argument to explain why what was happening, why Job was facing severe suffering, is actually pretty simple and clear, and it repeats again and again in different forms. See, the theology that underlines all three friends is very simple and clear. You'll see it there. God is absolutely in charge, and we've seen that in Job 1 and 2. And God is absolutely just and fair. Therefore, he always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness. If he would do otherwise, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be just in their mind. And therefore... If someone suffers, it must be because they have sinned and are being punished justly for their sin. That's the line of of their thinking. That's the logic that undergirds all their speeches and what they say. Remember Eliphaz, consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? So the question for us is, well, if that's their argument, is it unreasonable And in one sense, it's not really that unreasonable. For the first two parts of the system, we would probably all agree with. The scriptures do affirm that God is in charge, and we know of God's character, that he's just and fair. Now, we might not feel that that's the case or believe that, but just lay that aside for the moment. That's how the scriptures present him. And they believed it, and they were right to affirm that was so. And alongside that, the the final two points, they're not unreasonable also, are they? We know that actions have consequences. That's true in, in life, generally, but also we see it in the Bible as well. We see that many people suffer as a, a direct result of their action or, or inaction. In the Bible itself, we see different characters. We see When they commit secret sins, well, it eats away at their conscience and health. We see that that lying breaks trust in relationships. We see that unforgiveness leads to resentment and bitterness. There are natural consequences to actions. In fact, even in the New Testament, Paul in the book of Galatians says, you know, you you reap what you sow. It's It's a general principle if you sow badness, you will reap poison. Or if you sow goodness, you will reap blessing. It's, it's logical. And so Job's friends within this system conclude that Job has done something wrong, and so he needs to repent. 
And so on and on they go through their speeches, seeking to persuade him of that. And Job's continual insistence that he hasn't sinned deeply disturbs them. And we see that in today's reading, in Bildad's second speech, in verses 1 to 4. See, Job has insisted just before this that his suffering is not a result of his sin. And so Bildad comes to him and he says, you know, you, you're no, there's no exception, you're no exception for the rule. You, you are bringing into question God's justice and power, the very moral fabric of the universe. If you look at verse 4, Bildad says, it's outrageous for Job to imagine that the earth may be abandoned for your sake or the rocks moved from their place. He's saying there's a, there's a moral reality to this world and, and you're no exception to this, Job. And by saying that you are, well, you're calling into question the justice and goodness of God. Well, that is saying you can't expect a cosmic exception to be made for you. It's an absolute rule, verse 5, that the light of the wicked must be put out. So, Job, if you're suffering, well, it's because you are a wicked. And then he goes on to articulate in a very colourful picture the kind of future place of the wicked. See, the friends' arguments are neat and plausible. Given how they saw the world, no wonder they respond to Job the way that they did. Job is challenging a well-ordered world. But as one American writer once wrote, explanations exist, they have existed for all time, there is always a well-known solution to every human problem, neat, plausible and wrong. See, the problem is that the friends are, are wrong. See, Job 1 and 2 have taught us that Job is blameless. His conscience is clear. And so what we see here with the friend's explanation of things is not so much that there's not some truth in it, there is, but that it's insufficient. It's what the system leaves out that is the problem, which we'll look at briefly now. See, there are vital things that they have omitted from their theology. Firstly, they have no Satan in their system. If you were to go back to chapters 1 and 2, Satan is a character that appears in this story. He is known as the accuser. In the broader Bible story, he comes up as the character of the devil. Now, our world uh, believes in devils, but we usually use that to refer to someone we might dislike or find morally uh, repulsive. And it's important just to say here, though, that the Bible affirms both a material and a spiritual world. The Bible says that there are spiritual forces, unseen, but no less real, at play in our world. To modern ears, that can be considered prehistoric, bizarre, or crazy. But to say that we don't believe in the spiritual doesn't mean that the spiritual doesn't exist. And that's the world that we're reading this particular passage in. There's not enough space to, to delve into that further, but just simply to register that. In Job 1 and 2, we see that Satan is a real and influential person. He's described in the Bible as God's chief adversary. But in the Friends theology, they have no place for evil from outside or a spiritual force 
Evil is a purely human phenomenon, the action of someone or the inaction of someone. There is no spiritual battle. So they admit the place of Satan in their system. And secondly, what they admit is the place for waiting. And this relates to their second and their third point. See, God is just and fair. And there is a sense in our world that he punishes wickedness and rewards righteousness. But for the friends, they thought that that should happen now and immediately. It's like a, a can machine where you, you, you used to, you probably have to tap now, but you used to insert a coin and you would receive the can. And in a similar way, you put in some goodness and out pops a blessing in their system of thinking. Or equally, you put in some badness and out pops the poison. Now the Bible says that this is generally true, but not immediately. See, people will be held to account, but it might not be now, but in the future. It's a promise for the end, where God will right every wrong. But the problem with the dispenser machine formula as well is that it doesn't leave room for the space that God could treat someone in a way that they don't deserve. And that takes us to the third point. Finally, they have no place for the cross. They've left no place for the puzzle and disorder of of life. They leave no place for the innocent suffering. They think that if the blameless or upright were to suffer or perish, the moral universe would be out of whack. But that means that they have no place for the innocent one, the Lord Jesus, who would suffer and go to the cross. See, for the friends, that their world is like a, a well-ordered street. You can imagine if you, you look outside at, at Miller's Point. It's a well-ordered street with everything in its place. But our experience of the world is, is, is disordered, isn't it? Life isn't like that. The reality is our experience of the world is like there's been an earthquake outside. And so there's patterns that you can emerge and see, so you get a general sense of things, but things don't often go the way we plan. And that's the beauty of, of the wisdom literature. Proverbs works in a way which says that life is generally like this. If you do this, then this will result. But the book of Job and Ecclesiastes leave room for a world that's not tidy and ordered, but one that's in disarray and disordered. And because they leave no place for that, they leave no place for God to intervene through the cross. Nor are they honest with the experience of real life because bad things happen to good people. And we see this all through the Bible and we see this principally in the Lord Jesus at the cross. He was the innocent one who was punished for the guilty on the cross, Jesus experienced the torments of hell that, that Bildad describes in this chapter. Punishment, the terror, the separation. But he was the innocent one experiencing these things to, to redeem, not to punish the wicked. Again, the friends have no place that God might treat a sinner better than they deserve. But that's the good news of God's grace. 
And this is the good news that they omit from their theology. So we can see that their friends are no comfort. They're miserable comforters, as Job calls them, because they come to him with a false theology. And we need to be aware that we don't hold a, a false theology ourselves, whether we just fall into it, perhaps through our own thinking that, well, perhaps because these bad things are happening to me, I've done something in the past and this is God punishing me. Well, no, God doesn't work like that with us. There's another form of theology which thinks that because we have faith in Christ, therefore all the blessings that will be ours in him should be ours now rather than in the future. But again, that's not the life that Jesus promised. The pattern of the Christian life that Jesus presents to us is suffering then glory. So we need to beware not to fall into the trap of thinking the same theology as the friends. But what else do we learn about being a friend or, as the case may be, how not to be a miserable comforter? Because it's not just bad theology. There's other things too. It's about their tone, isn't it? See, firstly, they lack kindness. If we give them the benefit of the doubt, they, they responded initially well. They sat with Job for seven days and wept with him. They sat silent and listened. But it all went very pear-shaped from there. See, the friends are very sure that they are right. They appeal in chapter 5 to their reason, in chapter 8 to, to tradition, and then in chapter 15, they're dismissive of Job. They're saying, we're older and wiser than you. So they appeal to their age. And so as they bring their system upon him, there's no chinks in their armour. There's no humility. They don't allow the evidence to get in the way of a good system. There's no puzzle in the world that they observe. There were many questions that they asked, but there weren't any kind ones. We need to be learn, we need to learn to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And what we can take from that as as those who have been shown kindness in Christ, we need to extend it to others. We need to be kind. But secondly, what we see is they lack honesty. See, they are prepared to, they're not prepared to look at the world the way it is. They look out onto Miller's Point and it's a well-ordered world with everything in its right place. They leave no room in their system that actually it's, it's, it's disordered and it's disarray as if an earthquake had, had been through. Well, like a well-ordered world, the world that we experience is, is not that. It's disordered by the chaos of, of sin. And that's the world that actually aligns with God's word and our lived experience. But they fail to see the world the way that it truly is. Their theory did not fit. But rather than question the unreality of their theology, they just powered on. Well, we need to have the humility, unlike them, not to speak for God. Perhaps the encouragement is not to, to jump in without a moment's pause and reflection to recognise that we might not have the whole picture. And leading into the final point that relates to this one with humility, they lack sympathy. If you read chapter 4, the opening words of Eliphaz don't seem to comprehend what has happened to him. 
and particularly what he's just said in chapter 3. They may feel sorry for him at the start, but it's obvious that they don't empathise with him in his pain. Eliphaz, in his first response, in chapter 4, verses 2 to 5, paraphrases, saying, you know, you used to be a great comforter. What happened now that you're suffering? There's no sense of, of seeking to wrestle with Job in the ashes, to, to walk in his shoes with him. Related to the last point, a lack of humility will lead to a lack of empathy. Friends are to be empathetic. That means that when we speak words, and we do come with words of hope and promise, we don't jump in too quickly. We sit patiently and listen. We recognise that the world is disordered, that we may not have the full picture, and so we're humble, but we seek to empathise and gently remind one another of Christ's empathy for the sufferer and his care of them. So let's ask the Spirit to help us to be humble and courageous friends who are kind, who seek to listen first with a tender ear, who are honest and recognise that life is perplexing and although we don't know God's plans and purposes, we don't pretend to speak for him in certain situations, but we're empathetic. We recognise our limits. We try and understand and we gently remind others of Christ's empathy as a sufferer and a carer for them. These are the good things that we can do. Friendship can be really sweet, but it can come with a sting. It's fraught, but it is good. And these, these words of, of, uh, in Job where we see these friends should cause us to pause and reflect, but they shouldn't paralyse us because we have a model of the true friend in Christ whom we can look to to seek to bring comfort to others. I'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians about how we can be those that bring comfort rather than misery to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this section of Scripture where we see uh, Job's friend struggle to comfort his friend in the midst of suffering. And we see the, the things in which they omit, uh, which are the, the wonderful realities of the gospel. That the innocent one suffered for us so that we might be redeemed and restored uh, to him. 
And so we pray that as brothers and sisters here and as friends, we might be those that truly seek to comfort one another in the midst of suffering by pointing to the one who suffered for them and who cares for them. And so we pray that we might do so kindly, that we might do so honestly, and that by your spirit you might help us to do that with empathy and sympathy. In Jesus' name, amen.